From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. There's a lot of podcasts out there, so thanks for choosing a Fintech OG, as recently described by Alex Johnson of Fintech Takes. Thanks, Alex. We're talking Revolut reportedly to be declined a UK banking license. An emerging story, but early reports suggesting that Revolut are not going to be successful in the application, um, which obviously will have a huge impact on, on them and on the whole UK Fintech industry. So one for us to definitely keep an eye on. Anne Bowden steps down a Starling CEO. Again, another emerging and very important story for the UK fintech scene. Um, we talk through the impact that, that she has had and, and what Starling has achieved and, and what we think is to come. And palm scanning payments technology at the baseball. We talk about sweaty palms, underage drinking and a whole lot more. We get into all this and much more on today's show. So let's dive in. But first, a few brief messages. We'll be back shortly. <music> Hello, lovely listeners. We just wanted to let you know that Global Processing Services, otherwise known as GPS, the payments platform trusted by the leading issuers to process billions of transactions a year, have changed their name to Thread. Why Thread? Well, Thread because their tailored payment processing solutions are the thread that connects payments innovators of the future. Thread because they are a true partner becoming part of the fabric of your business as it grows. And Thread because, well, it just feels right. Find out more at thread.com. That's T-H-R-E-D-D.com. Thread. Weaving payments magic. Welcome to episode 743 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some brilliant guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, Ross Gallagher Ventures Lead. Hello, Ross. Um, what can you, what goss can you give us about what you're working on right now? Oh, hey, Kate. Um, yeah, so look, we've just kicked off a, a really, really exciting piece of work to design a new challenger retail proposition in the Middle East. Um, we've got a couple more really exciting projects kicking off over the next couple of weeks as well. So actually a really exciting time. And obviously the most exciting news for our listeners is that you've had a very glamorous haircut, which obviously doesn't come across on the podcast, but I, I'm sure they would want to know. I appreciate you flagging that. <laughs> Up next, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Lena Hackler, CEO at Bright Payments. Welcome back to the show, Lena. Thank you so much for joining us again. We'll get to your news very shortly, but could you remind our listeners about you and Bright Payments, please? Yes, thanks so much for um, inviting me to come back. Um, a pleasure to be with you again. I'm Lena, I'm founder and CEO at Bright, as you said. Bright Payments is an online payments company based in Stockholm, and we focus on instant bank-based payments. So essentially letting consumers use only their bank account to make a payment online or receive a payment online um, from retailers, for example, in case of online refunds, um, payouts of consumer loans, insurance claims, you name it. Awesome. Well, very much looking forward to getting your take on on your story and also all the others that we have to cover today. So thanks for joining us. And finally, we have a Fintech Insider debut for Tom Bianco, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Embedded Payments at Fifth Third Bank. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Welcome to the show. Can you give our listeners an introduction to you and Fifth Third, please? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate being called brilliant before we get uh, into the segment. So so thank you for that. Um, so to set context, Fifth Third Bank is headquartered out of Cincinnati, Ohio, here in the, the United States. We have been operating since 1858. We have a little over 200 billion in assets and uh, a little over a thousand what we call banking centers um, here here in the state. So we also have a long history of what I'd call innovation in the payment space. 
So for example, we had the first networked ATM in the United States, uh, WorldPay, the U.S. operations um, were really built on a company called Vantive. And Vantive is a company that we spun out of Fifth Third back in 2009. So um, we're kind of a big, a big bank by size, uh, an even bigger bank by payments innovation. Um, and I've been at the bank roughly five years, have time at J.P. Morgan in New York, and then Wells Fargo. Well before that, um, pre-digital days, back when it was all internet. Uh, and so when the iPhone came out and introduced here's all the things you can do through a mobile application. You went from like class D office space to class A office space. Uh, I was uh, riding that wave with everybody. So have been around in this space for a long time and uh, happy to be here with everyone. Thank you for the invite. Well, that's uh, a brilliant intro. So yeah, thank you very much. Already already living up to the bill. So thank you for joining us and looking forward to getting your take on the news. And with that, let's get into the news. As always, a ton for us to cover. Our first story is taken from The Telegraph, and that is Bank of England plans to reject Revolut's bid for banking license. The Bank of England has told the Treasury that it is planning to reject Revolut's application for a banking license after a two-year campaign by Britain's most valuable fintech company. The Prudential Regulation Authority, or PRA, the arm of the bank responsible for licensing, informed the government in March that it planned to issue a statutory warning notice to Revolut within a couple of weeks. It said the company's initial application would be turned down owing to concerns over its balance sheet after a qualified audit opinion and overdue accounts released the same month. Revolut has said auditors' concerns were about revenues, not the balance sheet. However, it's understood that the warning notice has not been served and there are now urgent talks taking place behind the scenes in a bid to rescue the licence application. Well, um, you know, a huge story from the Telegraph um, that's going to impact you know, the whole fintech industry um, and one of many about Revolut that we've covered in the last few weeks and months. So we asked on the 11FS LinkedIn, is Revolut fintech's main character? And with more than 200 votes, 34% said yes, they are, while 66% said no, they're not. So, you know, a third of people think they're a pretty big deal. Ross, would you agree is Revolut the main character of fintech? If not, who is? I think I would agree. I think I would agree. I mean, um, they certainly are subjected to um, a lot of media scrutiny, right? You know, some could argue that they're sort of subjected to maybe a little bit more media scrutiny than 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 some other fintechs. I think you could certainly make the argument, right, that the media coverage is maybe different, right, to some other established sort of fintech, what we might call darlings, right, Monzo, Starling, others. And I think, look, you can understand Revolut's frustration in this instance, right? Like they've been campaigning hard for UK banking license for a good couple of years. I think at various points, actually, probably even seemed a little bit optimistic, right, that it was going to be granted. But the reality is that's set against a really, really bad, difficult, challenging last few months for Revolut, right? They were sort of six months late filing their accounts. When those accounts actually then finally were filed, their own auditor raised concerns of their accuracy, saying it was hard to verify given the configuration of their IT systems. And then you've had several sort of high-profile senior execs leave the business recently, right? And big roles like chief financial officer, head of regulatory compliance, money laundering reporting officer, right? Both those roles um, based specifically within the UK. Now, I don't know about you, but those feel like roles that if I were a regulator, I might be interested in, right? Like, that's not a good look when you're going for a uh, a banking license, right? So you can also then certainly understand the regulator exercising a little bit of caution here and how maybe actually all of that could be seen as a, a big red warning sign, right? That maybe things aren't quite right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Tom, how does this how does this look to someone from the US looking in on the UK's regulatory system? Does does this kind of make sense, or, or what's your take? I think there's a, a a couple distinctions to make between the the UK or the European markets and and the US market. I think first and foremost, there's roughly five thousand banks that have FDIC insurance here in the United States. So you have this fragmented market that already exists and. When you think about what it takes to become a bank in the United States, there's obviously a laundry list of things to get through. But the the U.S. marketplace is one where innovation is valued at a premium. And so if you have a compelling client customer value proposition and you have the backing either from really good institutional investors or from an experienced management team, you can make it work in the United States. Um, so I think if you look at it in the context of there's already roughly 5,000 FDIC insured institutions here in the U.S., there's always going to be the opportunity for innovative companies to come in and, and deliver their value to the market. So the U.S. will basically always be open if you follow the rules, so to speak, on that front. The other front that I think is interesting is you're starting to see different models that have existed in Europe. So if you look at some of the faster payment schemes in Europe, those are really starting to be well understood, I would say, by the consumer, by the banking institution and by the regulatory bodies we have here. So uh, outsider looking in, I say, well, they've got an interesting value prop. They're delivering value in a way that's unique to the U.S. market. But it's really difficult to get through the moat on the U.S. banking system. And so what we've seen, some companies come into the U.S. marketplace and have some success is finding the right sponsor bank. So if you can align with a company on vision, scope of your offering, the risk management viewpoint, do you have the right operators in the right seats? Can you find the sponsor bank that can help you grow to your ambitions? We've seen that to be a pretty successful model. But you've always have the are you in coopetition? What does it look like from a competitive standpoint? So there, there will always be that dynamic. But um, I like to see the innovation uh, across, you know, across the pond or across the different kind of geography boundaries we have, because it is fun to say, well, will that model exist here? If so, when? How would we do it? And if we're not going to build it ourselves, then what's the right partnership model or the right relationship model to deliver it? Yeah, no, for sure. Um Lena, obviously Revolut have had more regulatory success so far with you know, the European Central Bank. They've got their license in Lithuania. Um, I think you know, my understanding is they've had a couple of you know, conversations with those regulators as well, You know, trying to you know, iron out a couple of issues as well. But it's generally been a bit more successful than obviously the place around in the UK. What's your perspective on, obviously you guys obviously are also dealing with regulators. Do you kind of think it's easier to get that route into the European system or, or why have Revolut been successful there and not in the UK, do you think? I think that the regulatory landscape in Europe is still relatively varied. I hear a lot of things about different regulators and how they operate. Certainly, I think UK regulator has been strict recently. I think this is not the only case, but we've heard similar news. But also the Baltics have traditionally been very welcoming to innovation. I mean, it's a highly digitalized um, landscape over there. They've been, if you look, for example, the, the, what they've rolled out in terms of customer identification, they're sort of known to be on the innovative side. And perhaps that is also why their regulator has been a bit more lenient in the past. Um, so I wouldn't say that um, the Lithuanian case, and in particular, is representative of Europe as a whole, but rather that I see different trends in regulators or across regulators in Europe. The overall trend, though, I must say, is that it is getting stricter all across. Um, I think Germany has the number of cases where that's the case. So I think it's hard to generalize. Sure. No, absolutely. And Ross, like, how much is this 
lack of a banking license, if it if that is how it ends up, you know, how much is that holding Revolut back? Well, look, it's holding them back, I guess, in terms of growth, right? In terms of um, if you have a full um, banking license, you can offer deposit protection, you can probably reach more customers. Um, of course, if you can do lending, then you can convert those customers into more profitable customers. So absolutely, look, it is holding them back, make no mistake. I just want to offer, I guess, um, a slight defense maybe of the regulator in this context, right? I think if you look at the UK and you look at the fintech successes that we've had over the last decade, I'd probably argue actually the the FCA, the PRA, probably could be seen as really a sort of gold standard, right, among regulators in the UK in terms of fostering that types of that type of innovation and partnering with those fintechs to get those sort of innovative products to market. I think what's different in this case with Revolut is there's innovating and there's innovating, right? And I think that sort of move fast and break things approach that Revolut really have seemed to sort of like embodied, I think makes regulators nervous. And I think it should make regulators nervous, right? Like they're dabbling in crypto, which raises these whole other like sets of regulatory questions. And then there's also the point about how you engage with regulators, right? And I think Revolut maybe don't have a great track record there, right? I mean, we've seen them sort of maybe throw their toys out of the pram a little bit in in the last week or so, threatened to sort of exit from the UK. And, you know, you can only assume that that's to put pressure on lawmakers to maybe take a more favorable view of the banking license application. And it doesn't feel like that's the basis for a strong sort of collaborative partnership. Yeah, I was reading one one article that was quoting, you know, like sources close to the company that was saying, you know, regulators like firms that are focused and vanilla, not firms expanding globally at lightning speed. So again, it sort of feels like quite a lot of fisticuffs and verbal back and forth. So I guess everyone's trying to like jostle for position. Where do you think, I mean, if if this does come to does come to pass and Revolut does kind of follow through with pulling out of the UK, like, you know, Lena, do you think Revolut would relocate and go somewhere else genuinely like could they be more successful in, in other places basing themselves elsewhere my impression has been that they're generally trying to increase their their coverage across europe and sort of of course eventually probably have a more um encompassing offering across more markets and what i think is interesting if you look at basically what is the end game for these new banks right in, in my point of view there's very much sort of um a, a race towards being able to replace traditional banks completely, especially for sort of the younger generation that perhaps is um, establishing their banking relationships for the first time. And if they don't get a full banking license, that will just be a lot more difficult to do because they'll only be able to have a more niched offering. And for example, I mean, we, we, like Ross, you gave a few examples about what they can't do, but there's also topics such as mortgages, which I think is, is, is one way to establish a longstanding relationship with a bank. And if they can't offer those in, in the longer run, I think that will probably be quite challenging through their strategy. And the UK is, is one of the largest economies in Europe. Um, and there must be a reason why they focus on that, as, as many of the, you know, it is though, from a digital point of view. Um, so I think that that could probably put a dent into the growth journey and they may refocus on other markets in Europe, but I have a really hard time them pulling out altogether personally. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just Europe as well, right? Like we were talking on the show a couple of weeks ago about you know, their plans to grow in Brazil. You know, we know they've launched license applications in Australia, but also, you know, they are applying for a license in the US as well, Tom. So, do you know, you know could they could they ditch Europe and, and move to the US? Do you kind of worry about Revolut in, in the US as kind of a a force that's going to shape the market? I think we look at coopetition in this space really in that vein of like, 
what are they offering to the marketplace? Is there something that we can learn from them? Is there something that we can help them with? Is there a way for the two companies, these different models to exist in unison? Because I think you look at the situation we're going through right now, and, and I look back at you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, and there's been a pretty big flight to quality in terms of deposits, in terms of faith in the banking system. So when you have a new entrant into the marketplace, it's not as simple as here's a channel for digital acquisition. Sometimes, and, and research would say, a lot of people like the security of a branch or a financial center, even if they don't go into that specific location, they like the presence of that physical location as a security, as a stability, as a, as a place to go ask a question if they have a question. So it's an interesting model. I think we look at some of the fintechs in this space and we say, what can we learn from them? How can we learn from them? Are there good areas to partner up? Um, and yeah, we're, we're always open to innovative competition in the U.S., yeah, and I, I don't think anyone could deny that Revolut have, have been and continue to be innovative. So, yeah, we'll have to continue uh, seeing how this actually plays out and see if they can reach some form of compromise. But, um, yeah, a big, a big story that will have a big impact on the whole space for sure. Okay, I'm going to move us on to our next story, and we've taken this one from AltFi, and that is that Bright Payments has launched an instant payments network. Swedish fintech Bright Payments is launching a network to power instant payments and payouts across Europe. The Bright Instant Payouts Network, or IPN, aims to help close the gaps in Europe's fragmented real-time payments landscape. It leverages open banking to give merchants and businesses what it describes as an out-of-the-box payments and payout solution. Bright has built a network that enables anytime instant payments processing while also addressing the limits of SEPA, single European payments area, instant transfers. Lena, obviously, great to have you here to discuss this new product launch. Going to come to you first, unsurprisingly. I mean, for our listeners, obviously, we've done the initial intro, but maybe you could give us a bit more context on like, what this network is actually trying to achieve. You know, what are you hoping that it's it's going to solve for customers? No, happy to do, of course. So at, at Bright, we focus on instant bank payments, but we use the open banking technology to let people make those payments. And if you look at the first generation of open banking payments companies that we see in Europe, they would traditionally have been more focused on using the open banking APIs to let consumers make payments directly to merchant bank accounts. And that is typically not instant in every single market in Europe. And while there's companies that have been tremendously successful with that model, so take for example, Ford in Germany, I think is like a really great example of how we can build a household brand. There, there are more benefits to account-based payments if they're executed instantly than what you have with that first generation of payments. So for example, if there's a delay in processing payments, typically what happens is that you can introduce fraud risk and credit risk. Just think about basically a payment you know, that goes into the account in the weekend, isn't executed until Monday morning. By that time, the balance may have been depleted. And I personally think, and the team here at Bright, together with me, we think that this is holding back the development of open banking payments across Europe. The UK, of course, is a fantastic market. You have the faster payment scheme. So this is less of a problem, perhaps. But if you look at you know, the rest of the markets in Europe, um, there is no such luxury. And that is what we want to address with the instant payment network. So what it means is essentially that we use open banking technology to initiate payments, but we receive them in IPN and that we're also able to send them from IPN as, as either instant payouts to consumers or even as, as um, merchant settlements, for example. And I guess for our listeners that you know are not European based, I suppose, could you give us some sort of specific examples of, that just show how fragmented that kind of European payments network is like? 
currently? I actually think there's fragmentations um, on a, a number of levels. I mean, first of all, I think the most commonly thought of payment scheme, of course, is the SIPA instance scheme in Europe, but that basically covers euro, which is one currency. There's another seven currencies in Europe, as we speak, or within just the EU that are not part of the SEPA instant scheme. Then if you look at SEPA instant, there's two underlying rails, RT1 and TIPS. Not all banks are connected to both of them. And if you're not connected to both of them, you're not going to get full coverage, even basically for the banks that are receiving it, which is yet another level. So there is, of course, not every bank is able to um, receive SEPA instant payments yet. So there's a challenge also connected to um, cross-currency payments um, to make them instant despite local instant schemes. For example, if you want to, between the discrepancies between Euro and GPP, SEPA instant to the faster payment scheme that also needs to be bridged. So on top of like the fact that some banking infrastructure just generally doesn't keep up with the developments um, of instant payments. For example, in the UK, um, you will still have banks that batch payments rather than sending them instantly even though you have um, the faster payment scheme. So there's a number of, um, of different layers that are still making for a pretty fragmented payments experience and that effectively keep us from making payments instantly. And that's something that we're looking to bridge with IBM. Awesome. And you've talked in the release about, you know, the sort of out of the box nature of the offering. I mean, again, like how, how would you define that? We know how difficult it is to get people to take on new payment methods and to kind of change those behaviours. So... Traditionally, you would have been able to work with an open banking payments company and see them as a connectivity layer to sort of plug into and show a payment method basically on your site. What we do is we offer a plug and play payment method instead. So essentially, we're always um, a branded experience towards the consumer. We take full receipt of the income and payments. You don't need to open any accounts locally. All you need to, to do is work with us and then we'll give you basically payments in whatever you market you choose to and whatever currency you like. So there's really no need for building any infrastructure, but rather just work with us in a way that you'd be used to working with a PayPal or a Klarna or, or any other payment method on the market. So that makes it more plug and play than I think what, um, what we saw from the first generation of open banking payments companies. Absolutely. Thank you. Ross, are people you speak to in the industry still talking a lot about open banking obviously this is something that Elena and her team are very passionate about but are you hearing that elsewhere as well or has you know AI replaced everything well AI absolutely has replaced everything I think um I think look people are probably talking less about open banking specifically but maybe that actually points to the success of open banking as as Lena sort of alluded to right here in the UK I think it's seen now very much as a sort of enabling technology rather than a, a sort of a buzz topic that everybody wants to talk about, right? And look, open banking in the UK, it has been an enormous success story, right? And especially, I think, with PSD2 and that sort of top-down mandate, I think the UK probably was seen as like the early leader in this space, right? And we've seen some data released earlier this year from the, the CMA9, the big nine banks in the UK, 7 million customers consumers and SMEs, right, used open banking services just in January this year alone. So I think staggering statistics. And like, it is genuinely benefiting millions of UK citizens, innovative like financial management, payment tools, all of that sort of stuff, things that we take for granted now that we never actually necessarily thought we'd be able to do. I think the question though, especially in the UK for open banking is like, what are those outer limits of our sort of ambition, right, in terms of what we can achieve through open banking? Like, is this enough, like where we are now, or could we actually go further? And I think general consensus, like while the UK has had a huge amount of success, is that markets now such as like Brazil 
Australia, others like India with their UPI, they've stolen a march on us, right? And I think there's lots of, you know, we've seen fintechs come together now recently with a, a sort of open letter that they've signed complaining about the pace of innovation across like standards, infrastructure. We know that the OBIE is transitioning to a new entity later this year to make open banking more competitive, make sure it remains competitive with those other markets. So definitely look in line with AI and all of these other things. Huge potential, and I think one to definitely keep an eye on. For sure. Um, Tom, I'd love to come love to come to you as well. Obviously, you know, I'm sh- sure you spend a huge amount of your, your life like thinking about payments kind of given your role. We have, as Ross said, seen quite big changes in the UK and you know, in India, for example, through these you know, top-down government-led initiatives. Obviously, the US is taking a a slightly different approach or sort of has done historically, you know, what what's your take, I suppose, on the implementation of open banking in the States? And I suppose, what do you think are the kind of key things that still need to be fixed to unlock some of these faster and more seamless payments that are obviously so key both to consumers and businesses? Yeah, you, you hit it head on. Sometimes I dream in payments, um, which is <laughs> which is probably not super healthy, but, you know, what, what can you do? So I, I think the thing that's been interesting to observe, again, just from the, the U.S. side is there's an actual definition in the U.K. of what open banking is. And and I like what SEPA did to say, if you want to connect in the network, this is what you have to do. And so as I think about the U.S. market um, and just getting back to some of the questions around competition and new entrants, there is an uh, effectively like an open field to compete. Now, what that open field does is it puts a lot of pressure. The competitive forces in the U.S., like sometimes they feel like they're off the charts, right? Because you have these thousands of institutions who are trying to carve a value proposition, trying to drive market share, and they're doing it in ways where you may not have an industry standard definition of what does open banking mean in the U.S.? What does embedded payments mean in the U.S.? What does embedded finance mean? What is banking as a service? So I think if you take the faster payments analogy where it was for first, you know, the Federal Reserve um, said, hey, the clearinghouse is going to launch their faster their uh, faster payments option. We'll come in with Fed now a little bit later. We'll see how the market evolves. I, I would expect there to be some similar shift in terms of regulatory definition and how they would start to carve out the open banking infrastructure in the United States. If the you know public sector can't get to some type of resolution on our own, um, I think there's been a lot of investment in these schemes from J.P. Morgan, from Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you name it, right? Fifth Third, obviously, um, in the same vein with those companies in terms of our open banking investments. But there has yet to be a single definition to say, here's how you access a bank account uh, from an API at one institution versus another. So there might be some kind of what I would call private sector definition, maybe stealing whatever happened in the UK on the open banking side, but uh, to be determined, I think the market has done a pretty good job of figuring it out here. Obviously, we're early days and it's like, sometimes you hear people say we're only 1% of the way through fintech, um, you know, across the globe and, and we're not even there at the US yet. I don't put a number on it, but I still think we're early days and there's a lot of opportunity uh, for the public sector to kind of kind of define it uh, if the private sector isn't going to step into that void. Yeah, that's really that's a really interesting way of, of putting it. I mean, Lena, how you know, Tom's talked about how good other markets have been at creating those definitions. How much has having that certainty been either like a help or a hindrance to you guys as you've been building out your product? 
I mean, basically, I think PSD2, um, of course, has very much set the stage for open banking across Europe, and that has been tremendously helpful. However, it still is fairly patchy, and we have really, really big hopes for PSD3 to sort of set a new standards and new definitions. Um, amongst others, I'm really looking forward to things such as SLAs for banks, for example, also longer limits for the SAEs on the consumer side. So I think there is some, I'm really hoping for a new standard that's going to be defined that is going to be even more helpful um, to foster innovation in the space. Is PSD3 like launch day going to be like massive party central in the in the bright offices then? We shall see. It remains to be seen. <laughs> um, but we certainly, we have a couple of favourites um, that are currently uh, in the proposal and we're keeping our fingers crossed that it's going to pass as is. Then of course, not, not everything's covered yet, but it's definitely a step into the right direction. And I think one thing that is often you know, forgotten when we talk about open banking is that there's multiple stakeholders. There's the consumer, there's a payment company, there's the banks, there's the regulation, and there's still a little bit of misalignment between those. And I'm hoping that sort of we're going to get to a um, to a point where that is a bit better calibrated so that everybody has an incentive to keep pushing it forward. Well, four is my lucky number. So I'm going to hedge my bets now that PSD4 is going to be the one that like just nails it absolutely forever in a day. So that's, that's my whole prediction. Um, Couldn't agree more. <laughs> we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. 11FS has been voted Consultancy of the Year at the British Bank Awards for a fourth time. We are super excited about bringing home the trophy, and it means more knowing that it is our clients that are the ones who voted for us. Digital financial services may only be 1% finished, but we're working with banks, fintechs, and everybody in between to chip away at the 99% still to go. And moments like this really tell us that we're on the right track. If you want to work with an award-winning team to build game-changing propositions, then let's chat. 11FS Ventures is home to industry experts across embedded finance, customer experience, digital strategy, bank building, and so much more. Kickstart your next project today and visit 11FS.com forward slash ventures. That's 11FS.com forward slash ventures. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show. We've put together an all-star panel of 11s to talk about how not to build a bank. Join Ross Gallagher, David Breer, Ewan Silver, Naz Ahmed and me for sharing of the battle scars of building banks across the world. An essential lesson for anyone building a financial services product. Go check that podcast out wherever you got this one. Okay, let's get back into the news. Our next story comes from TechCrunch, and that is that Daylight, the LGBTQ plus neobank, calls it quits. Daylight, an LGBTQ plus banking platform, is shutting down. Its operations will cease on June 30th, according to embattled co-founder and CEO Rob Curtis. The announcement comes months after NY Magazine published a fairly explosive feature on the neobank. NY Magazine's piece detailed a lawsuit brought on by three former employees, as well as alleged fabrications and inappropriate behaviour on the part of Curtis. In a blog published by the company, Curtis said he felt like now is the right time to exit this market and tell customers that their money is safe and will be fully accessible for transfer through 30th of June. Well, obviously, like always always sad to see kind of any any fintech kind of run out of run out of road um ross from your perspective what are the big lessons to take away from this it's tricky isn't it look i think when you're so sort of mission driven 
I think the reality is that there's just going to be added scrutiny, right? And I think you just need to hold yourself to a higher standard, right? And that's like rightly or wrongly. I'm not declaring a position on that. I think that's just fact. And so I guess a fintech that's just aligned to such an important cause, you just can't be seen to have like a toxic company culture. You can't be seen to be mis mistreating employees in the way that, that that have been alleged, right? And I think that's especially true when lots of the issues that have been alleged, that have been raised, are based on sort of really archaic prejudices, right? Black employees being paid significantly less than white ones, for example. So um, uh, lessons, I don't know. Look, I I think it's important to remember, like, you're going to get bad actors everywhere, right? And they'll hide behind, like, noble causes, like diversity and inclusion and all of that sort of thing, right? And I think, like, these are sound principles for running a business, don't get me wrong, as is, like, ESG and all of these things as long as you sort of like properly embody them but you're only going to get away with like greenwashing and the sort of i suppose the company culture equivalent of greenwashing in this case for so long i, I don't know if that's a, a lesson i mean maybe it is i think it's a takeaway yeah it's interesting i'm i wasn't sure whether it, you know whether they'd been looking to do another fundraising round and and just as you say like as a result of that kind of coverage just couldn't couldn't get it i thought it was interesting you know reading the a statement that you know, Curtis uh, CEO put out, he said, we couldn't provide these services in a way that covered our costs. And he said, this is likely a job for big banks and I hope they pick up the torch and carry our legacy forward. Um, Tom, like, as in, do you, do you think kind of the big banks in the US are are going to be sort of stepping up to, to focus on this particular audience? Like, they have been sort of historically underserved. I think it's, it's I, I don't think many people would dispute that. This is admittedly a story I, I wouldn't say I have a lot of um, coverage into or experience with, but I, I would say when you have an unmet customer need, um, given the, the environment we have here in the U.S. market, I think if there's a big enough opportunity, somebody will step in and, and they'll fulfill it. And, and hopefully if, as, and when they do fulfill it, they do it with what I'll call like a, a pristine approach to the core values, which I think is, is probably what everybody would hope. Um, as as a new entrant into this space, you know, steps into the void. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's an interesting conversation in the industry more broadly about whether, you know, these offerings focused on niche or relatively niche customer segments are are viable. Um, you know, daylight is shutting down. We've seen some other kind of challenges. So Aspiration has had to lay off a, a large chunk of staff. That's a sort of an eco-conscious challenger. Um, and Glorify, which described itself as sort of an anti-woke challenger, lasted just three months. So we've seen some of them struggle, but on the, on the other hand, we're seeing you know, some like Greenwood, for example, still continue to, to do relatively well. So I guess it's an interesting question. Obviously, the US has such a huge population that even these relative niches are still, you know, substantial population sizes. I think you know, the most relevant or most recent estimates I've seen is that there are sort of 30 million plus Americans who identify as LGBTQ plus. So, yeah, I guess it's sort of how big does how big does an, a segment need to be in the US for it to to be viable, do you think, as, as something to design a specific proposition for? Yeah, it's hard to put a number a, a number on that to say, um, you know, certain banks have X amount in assets in order for it to be something that's, you know, material enough. It has to be Y in size and nature. I think you just get back to, again, the core values of a company and the strategy of a company and where you have intersection on core values, strategy and market opportunity. That's typically something we've seen in the United States where somebody will step in. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, Lena, what was what was your take on this story? Do you think it was 
you know, is, is has something gone wrong here or did it just run out of road? I, I actually, I was also debating around whether, you know, just looking at last year, it's been a tough year for many fintechs, uh, even the largest ones. And then as a mission-driven, as, as Ross put it, I think was, was a great way to describe it, as a mission-driven neobank that is targeting a, a share of the population, even if it's a large market, um, I can just see how that, that'll be challenging. Um, also, for example, in investor dialogues, and on top of that, having internal challenges, uh, challenges such as what they um, seem to be having in terms of culture. Uh, it, it seems like like a lot um, to work through and to come out of. So I think that might very well just been, you know, a little bit too much in combination. And even if the US is a huge market, at, at the same time, it's also difficult to get a foot down, right? Because it's an incredibly competitive market and it's a mature market even for financial services. So that is probably what was my takeaway in terms of uh, why this happened. Even though I think, of course, it's sad. Yeah, no, it definitely, definitely is. I think, you know, the... The stats definitely show that there's still a huge amount of you know, discrimination against this this community. I think you know the home ownership rates are significantly lower than the national average. Um, you know we've seen that same-sex applicants for home loans are, are less likely to to kind of receive them. Um, they have higher levels of student debt and credit card debt than the general population. Um, and I sort of report in some studies to have you know, high amounts of, of sort of financial stress. And I thought it was interesting that. Daylight had kind of pivoted away from just being a sort of fairly straightforward fintech offering to offering this, I think, grow platform, if I remember correctly, you know, that was really focused on, in theory, trying to help these these couples or family units to to have have families of their own, to have children. Now, obviously, there's huge costs associated to that. So it just felt like an interesting combination of having, as you said, Ross, like a very clear mission, a very strong connection to that mission from the people that were leading the business. So these are people that were members of the community themselves. Having a strong sense of the, you know, the, the problems that their customers were facing or the barriers that they were encountering in their life. But I wasn't quite, you didn't quite feel that they had like the right roadmap of features to kind of really demonstrate or that they were tangibly moving the dial obviously it's a huge problem to try and overcome it sort of feels like you know it was something that was was ambitious for a fintech to to solve on its own so i suppose yeah i echo the sentiments of um their ceo in the in the hope that maybe just the fact that these guys have have got to where they got to will shine a light on this as an underrepresented audience and encourage um, f- bigger financial services companies to think about how they might tailor or adapt either like their products or their decision making processes or their profiling information to to try and turn around some of some of these adverse financial outcomes for for these customers. But yeah, it's 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 really sad. Ross, do you think? How do you think the investors will be feeling at, at this time? They, they'd raised, you know, Series A. You know, they'd, they'd had a, a fair amount of funding. Yeah, look, I think they're they're, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be feeling the way that probably a lot of investors um, are already feeling and will probably continue to feel um, based on the current market. But I don't think this should put others off trying to target products and propositions specifically at. Um, those sorts of like minority communities, right? Like you, you, you summed it up perfectly, Kate. They they do tend to to be disadvantaged in terms of like financial literacy, etc. There's a huge problem to be solved, and actually, I think if you can build the right products in the right way with inclusion built in, then yes, you're starting with a particular 
niche or a particular minority. But as long as you do that in the right way, there's no reason that you can't scale beyond that particular niche or that particular minority. Like the business opportunity is there. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of that as long as it's done in the right way. Absolutely. Okay. Well, yeah, fingers crossed we see some more stuff emerging for for those customers in, in that space. Our next story is taken from Electronic Payments International. And that is that Fifth Third has acquired Rise Money. Fifth Third has acquired embedded payments platform Rise Money. Rise Money enables other fintechs, financial institutions, and brands to build across multiple account types with one API. Embedded payments is a core component of Fifth Third's treasury management business with projected annual revenue of $130 million this year. Funded by 13 investors, one three, Rise has raised a total of $13.4 million in funding over three rounds, the most recent in a 2021 from a Series A round. Tom, obviously, great to have, have you here to get almost the inside perspective on, on this acquisition. I'd love to get your views on it. Why was this the right time for, for your organization to purchase an embedded payments platform? Yeah, absolutely. I'm super stoked to talk about Rise in detail. Like just uh, we're, we're beyond excited with how things played out. Before, before I get into Rise, would it be helpful just to take a step back and set context on the embedded payments business we have here at Fifth Third? Yeah, for sure. Oh, great. So the embedded payments business is is really kind of like an evolution of that payments innovation we talked about at Fifth Third. So going from Vantive uh, in 2009, when we spun that out to, to different investments we've made over time. And so we created this unit in December of 2021, and we brought together multiple teams across the bank. So a sales relationship management team, a product team in the bin sponsorship space, We've invested heavily in our client success and our technology organizations. And in doing so, we've built a, a unit here at Fifth Third that, as you mentioned, is on pace to generate $130 million in total revenue this year, where we build the capabilities, people, process, technology, control, et cetera, to accelerate our client's value proposition and to deliver payment capabilities natively into their software or their digital experiences to then hit their clients or their customers' jobs to be done. Um, so we've had a pretty nice growth uh, since December of 2021 in terms of clients, people, et cetera. And when we looked at Rise and conversation started, it wasn't a nice to meet you, Rise. We, we had known them for, for quite a while. We had philosophical alignment. We had alignment on product, on market, on what we saw were some things that needed to get done in order to really go and capture share. And so Rise fit into the overall fifth third strategy of investing in stable, profitable growth to deliver through the cycle performance. And so for us, Rise was another channel to deliver fee revenue from, you know, treasury management, ACH wire, you know, real-time payments, uh, you know, FedNow when that comes online, deposits risk management solutions. And it just gives us another example of that payments innovation and kind of flexing that innovation DNA muscle here at Fifth Third. So when we say we, we, we have payments innovation in our DNA, we're roughly a top 15 bank by asset size, but we're the eighth largest ACH originator in the United States. So there's a lot of institutional knowledge and expertise in the payment space. And so Rise just just fit that that need of a new platform to innovate and deliver those new kind of innovation models and integration pathways for our clients to deliver their business. So, yeah, we we have known Rise for a while. Justin uh, Howell and Dan Delasta from Rise, when we first started talking, it's like, oh, hey, old friend, how can we go about this together? And so, uh, yeah, we couldn't be happier with how things played out. 
a whole group of people that by sounds like just dream payments. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose what is it that you know? It sounds as like you say like there was huge amounts of like cultural alignment, customer alignment. I guess what was different? Like what was it that Rise are? What is it that Rise are adding in that FIFA didn't have on its own? So I would say. Um, it's not necessarily something we didn't have on our own, but it's a, an augmentation and an acceleration of a few areas. So, so first, the expertise. Like the team has operated in this space for quite a while. Uh, they know the fintech and VC community quite well. They have reputations. So that kind of checks the do they have the expertise box? And so when somebody's coming to us with a product strategy that that literally is being approved by their board of directors to help go, you know, attack a new space or build a new offering. Are they a credible? Will they be credible? Are they credible in that conversation? They they check that box and they just help augment the existing team we have in the play, in place. And then you look at talent. You say, okay, well, how can they change the overall skill set and talent profile of the organization? Some wonderful technologists, some very incredible business development professionals. So we're super excited to bring them into that existing mix today. And then we we had been building out our own embedded payments uh, value proposition from a technology standpoint. Um, and we'd looked at this as an accelerator of that play. So what you'll see is treasury management APIs coming into the Rise platform for that kind of single channel, one API to kind of connect into all of the capabilities that leverage the depth and breadth of the Fifth Third franchise. Yeah, no, it makes it makes a ton of sense. And I guess, you know, our listeners range... You know, across the whole spectrum of financial services knowledge and you know, from like lifelong experts, people who dream dream payments to kind of people just starting out. You know, as we've talked about a couple of things that maybe might not be super familiar to our listeners. So um, for people that are not super familiar with like you know, embedded payments, treasury management, could you kind of give us a sort of beginner's guide to kind of what, what these things are and why they're important? Yeah, absolutely. So treasury management, think of that as the core move money capabilities or payment types that help a business or an individual transfer funds from account A to account B. And so in the U.S., the big payment schemes, um, digital payment schemes or electronic payment schemes, you're looking at ACH, you're looking at WIRE, and you're looking at real-time payment and FedNow is kind of the next one up um, in addition to some of the card network. So those, when we say treasury management, we're really talking ACH, WIRE, uh, RTP, and FedNow is the main payment types. And when we say we have an embedded payments value proposition, that quite literally is us sitting down with our clients and prospects. And sometimes it's looking at a conceptual design or it's looking at a card program and, and they're saying, we would like to deliver this. How can you help us do that? And we provide the technology, the capabilities, the control environment, risk management infrastructure and expertise to say, in order to do X, we think you should you know, take the, the options over here. Um, and, you know, do X, Y, and Z, et cetera. So we're really sitting with them to say, how can we help accelerate your product value proposition with the capabilities and we're placing that directly at the point of need. So if you think of a digital wallet, um, the easiest example is you could have a digital wallet and you could say, you know, click pay me now. And that would be an API we would have in that digital wallet to initiate a real-time payment uh, funds transfer. Awesome. Thank you. Um Lena, how how excited are Bright about embedded payments? Is that something that you guys are massively focused on too? I think it's a super interesting space, and obviously, it makes for some really amazing customer experiences, which is which is something that we're still lacking in the payments industry. I think there's still improvements to made, be made in terms of like how frictionless payments are. 
And then with regard to how we are focusing on it ourselves, I think it depends a little bit on the viewpoint on embedded payments. We can certainly be embedded as a payment method without leaving any kind of website that is sort of part and parcel of what we do. If you're thinking about embedded payments as more of a customized experience um, within any kind of a SaaS setting, then there's obviously um, in an open banking payment space where we operate, there is, there is limits as to how much you can customize just because it is a standardized flow. So in certain scenarios, it's a super interesting channel for us and we're actively discussing with partners, um, but perhaps not in the traditional sense of what you would normally think about embedded payments. For sure. And Ross, I guess from like you, a perspective like the industry as a whole, obviously this is you know, an acquisition. Um, you know, we have, we've had lots of chat, lots of people sort of saying that we're going to see a lot more M&A this year. We're going to kind of see the market sort of concentrating. Do you kind of see this as a as a sign that this is actually happening or, or is this just kind of a, a one-off deal? No, look, I think to an extent I do, right? I think we'll see consolidation in the market. Absolutely. I think some of that will be through mergers and a- acquisitions, but I think only where it makes sense, right? I think Tom described incredibly well the alignment in this instance, right? And why this acquisition made sense. I think Yes, look, the era of endless funding is well and truly over, right? And businesses, I think, generally are being forced just to be like a lot more sensible, get to profitability a lot more quickly. So I think in that context, I don't expect to see like a wave of just frivolous mergers and acquisitions either, right? I think businesses fundamentally are just going to need to be viable. I think that's going to be the priority. But absolutely right, where you're adding new capabilities that open up new markets, new revenue streams, etc. then I think, yeah, look, I think we're going to see some interesting um, activity in this space for for sure. Yeah, just just to piggyback on that, on that comment, I think in, in the product world, people talk about market fit quite a bit. Have you met product market fit? Where are you with that? And when we looked at um, the, the Rise team and the Rise platform and the capabilities, it was the same I guess, concept of market fit, but it was like M&A fit. And I don't know how many M&A fit opportunities are out there. I'm sure they're there. There will be some, but this one just just fit for us. And, uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with the teams since the deal uh, closed and, and we're super excited about the future. So we keep asking people to watch the space. Like we've been building deposit, you know, innovative deposit solutions, innovative payment solutions. And as we bring it into this single platform, it's it's going to be quite a fun journey. We're, we're super, super excited about it. Cool. Well, I likewise, you're excited to see what, what you guys bring bring to the market. So congrats on, on the acquisition and wish you all the, all the best of it. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quickfire roundup of some more clickworthy news this week. Uh, first up from, from me, this one comes from TechCrunch, and that is uh, Gia, a blockchain-based lender of small businesses in emerging markets, has raised $4.3 million in a seed round. Gia, a blockchain-based fintech providing loans to micro and small businesses in emerging markets, has raised $4.3 million in seed funding. There's also an additional $1 million commitment for on-chain liquidity as part of the round led by early-stage backer TCG Crypto. The startup taps decentralized finance to offer loans to borrowers who receive tokens after repayment that they can later redeem at a rate agreed upon based on Gia's profits. The fintech plans to use the funding to double down on its operations in Kenya and the Philippines before exploring new markets in West Africa, Latin America and Asia. To find out more, we reached out to Zach Marks, co-founder of Gia, to ask what does the blockchain make possible here that wasn't possible before? All right, the FinTech Insider team, here is the million dollar question. What does the blockchain make possible here that wouldn't be possible otherwise? 
At Geo, we really use the blockchain in two main ways. The first is to distribute ownership efficiently, and the second is to connect investor capital with small businesses around the world. To explain the first, we really need to go back to the context of our mission, which is to unlock financial freedom around the world and help small business owners build wealth. So the main way people build wealth is through ownership. Look at how we do it in America. It's not through wages or clocking into your business. It's through real estate or equity positions, through ownership. And our borrowers and emerging markets know this. And even if we wanted to, it's just practically impossible for a private company based in the U.S. to distribute ownership around the globe. And certainly it's infeasible to distribute fractional shares to a borrower in Kenya every time he repays a loan and do it in a way where those shares are liquid. But if you represent ownership on-chain with a token that has claim to a flow of on-chain revenues, you can distribute ownership quite efficiently with that token, and it's immediately liquid. Um, what's more is through the concept of programmable money, you can make that token more than just a simple speculative investment, but it can also have functions in a financial ecosystem. When borrowers get tokens, they can use them to unlock lower interest rates or higher loan amounts or longer repayment periods. And they can also use them to grow the community. So when they stake their tokens as collateral for a friend to borrow, and that friend pays back, they get even more returns since they helped underwrite that, tra that transaction. And this is really all based on the core idea that when a borrower repays, they are creating value and they should have an upside and earn a piece of that value they're creating, not just the capital thousands of miles away. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting one. I mean, firstly, like congrats to the team on the raise. Um, always kind of exciting to see new companies kind of get that seed round that helps them to go out and really try and prove out some of these initial concepts and ideas. And you know, the Philippines and, and Kenya are super super fascinating, exciting markets, um, and obviously quite abroad. It's interesting, they're kind of going after sort of Africa, sort of Latin America and Asia kind of simultaneously. That's kind of quite a big amount to take on even that early stage of the business. So you know, really focusing on some some interesting problem spaces. We know that microloans, if executed properly, can can really help to unlock economic opportunities. So looking forward to seeing what they, seeing what they do. Ross, I think you've got the next story for us. I do, and it's quite a surprising one from BBC News. So Anne Bowden is stepping down as chief executive of Starling Bank nine years after founding the company. So Bowden said it was the right time to step aside as Starling reported a record pre-tax profit of £195 million, an incredible six-fold increase on the previous year. So she will step down on the 30th of June, but will stay on the board and still part-own the company. Revealing her intention to leave in an exclusive interview with BBC Wales, Ms. Bowden said Starling is bigger than just one person. It is bigger than a founder-led organisation. It is a piece of infrastructure that is important to the UK. We provide a real role in society. Now, Anne was kind enough to take part in our 11 Years documentary a few years back. You can still check this out on YouTube. Um, here she is explaining the origin story of Starling. <laughs> When the crisis subdued and we got to the next stage, the recovery, and we all started putting our organisations back together again, everybody went back to the way they were before. The bankers forgot what had happened. And when they started talking about their bonuses and about recreating the past, I decided that I had to create a new sort of bank. I wanted to be a banker, but I wanted to be proud to be a banker. And that's why I started Starling Bank. Wow, and has she built something to be uh, to be proud of? I mean, look, what can you say? I mean, other than to recognise the phenomenal achievement, I guess, in turning that that vision that she 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 spoke about into reality. I mean, 
Also, look, just incredible awareness to recognize that it's the right time to step back and trusting that the team will sort of continue to be successful. So just huge congratulations to Anne and, and to the entire Starling team. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure this is one that we'll probably maybe dig into in, in more detail or be interested to kind of see what the next steps are for Starling. But um, yeah, just sort of echo that really. And I suppose on a personal level, just kind of really grateful for what she's done as a, as a female leader in financial services in our in our country. Obviously, it's been great to, to kind of have that that representation and, and she's done some amazing things. So, so kudos to her. Um, okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the show, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This one comes from CNET and that is that Amazon's palm scanning tech now lets you buy a beer at a baseball game. The next time you take yourself out to the ball game, you might be able to pay for beer and prove you're of age to drink it all with the touch of your palm. Coors Field, home of Major League Baseball's Colorado Rockies, is the first sports venue to offer Amazon One's age verification capability. Amazon One is the palm-based identity service that lets you pay and verify your identity by hovering your hand above a scanner at various stores and venues. To use the Amazon One service, you first have to enroll and Coors Field offers enrollment kiosks on-site. Patrons can enroll in the age verification part of the service by visiting the Amazon One website and uploading a photo of the front and back of their government-issued ID, such as a driver's license as well as a selfie. While it may not seem like a massive time saver, every second may count at Major League Baseball games when looking to witness an elusive home run. Well, um, Tom, as as a representative of America on this show. I'm going to come to you first. Um, are you, would, would you be signing up to use your hand to pay for some beers? Maybe. I think, um, yeah, I think there's legitimate privacy concerns and there's legitimate how much of your identity do you want to give to, you know, or consolidate with certain companies. But I will say, assuming the tech works and it's it's scalable, one of the big friction points in mobile waltz in the U.S. has been state-issued ID and the ability to verify somebody's identity. So if there's more applicability outside of beer sales, hot dog sales, souvenir sales, not sure where they're going to take it at Coors Field or, or whatever, that might be an interesting tech to kind of bridge some of the the, the gaps we've had in the, the mobile wallet technology here in the United States. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose I'm reading it about this whole age verification part. Maybe I'm being a bit silly, but if you just have to upload a photo of a license and a selfie and then it kind of gets attached to your account, like I'm just thinking like if I was that age, I would have just kind of got like a friend who looked a bit like me who was a bit older or a sibling or a cousin or somebody just to kind of like, if you can just do it at home and then you just, yeah, I don't know. To me, that feels kind of easier, but I don't know, maybe I'm massively missing something. Ross, do you think the end of underage drinking is is upon us? Well, actually, just to pick up on your first point, I, I had a similar sort of like, I got really excited when I read the start of this story. And the reason I got excited is because I sort of related it to like carbon dating trees, right? I just thought like it was like scanning the rings and it was like, you've got 18 rings, you're good to go. And then so I realized actually, no, it's a lot more. Kind of basic, like you said, you just sort of link it to your um, the front and back of your ID, and you it's kind of like I was like, that's less exciting. Um, is it the end of underage drinking? No, <laughs> they will always find a way. They'll find a way. They'll find a way. Always find a way. <laughs> 
Lena, do you think we need this in, in Europe? You know, I'm so glad that Tom got the question first because he was able to offer a much more professional viewpoint. My, my first thought was, you know, lots of really, really excited fans with sweaty hands at the football stadium. And how well is this really going to work? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I feel that we have pretty good solutions over here in Europe. I don't think the data privacy is is such a big concern, though, to be, to be honest. I mean, Apple is already scanning our faces, so Amazon scanning our hands doesn't feel like such a stretch to me, personally. So I don't know what will stand in the way, uh, if it's the experience or the actual performance of the product or if it's data privacy. I guess it remains to be seen. Yeah, I had the same thought, actually, about like, if your hands are like dirty or sweaty, like will it will it still work? Because yeah, I felt like that could be quite like embarrassing like if you're at the front of the queue and it's basically just like a public like <laughs> like you're dirty no no beer for you I don't know that would be obviously it would not happen to me because I'm immaculately clean at all times um okay we're launching our own fintech insider baseball team I'm, I'm led to believe the fintech insiders what is the one financial service that you would bring to the team Ross Oh, why did you come to me first? This is like the Eurovision all over again. Like I suck at these <laughs> questions. You re- that's why I come to you first. I need to stop funny. leaving like the 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 and finally story as like a surprise. I need to start reading these in advance. I, stop procrastinating and answer the question. Oh, <laughs> uh, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take the first one off the list. I'm gonna say thank you to producer Matt and I'm gonna say buy hot dogs now, pay later. Fe- feeble. Feeble. Obviously not. Obviously not the thing that Matt wrote, which is great, but... <laughs> I can only apologise. I'm completely lacking in creativity. Lena, what about you? I like the concept of owning partial shares and players. Yeah. That seems like a pretty, pretty good investment. Looking at like what some of those guys are banking, I yeah. think it seems uh, an exciting investment. Okay, cool. So we've got hot dogs, partial shares. Tom, what are we missing? You, you must know baseball better than us, so... <laughs> Well, I, I I love baseball, so gu- guilty as charged. Um, long-suffering Chicago Cubs fan, for those who know the history of the Chicago Cubs, so still still riding on to 2016. But I will say, uh, I'm going to take crowdfunding players and add it to a concept of name, image, likeness we have for college athletes here in the U.S. So, like, yes, you get your uh, you get the community to pay your salary, but you also get to own your identity and how you brand and market yourself. I think that's a nice good evolution from amateur to professional status here. So I think the fintech insider should make sure that, you know, you're getting all the credibility for your professionalism. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. Um, I've been told that I have to contribute as well, but I, I, yeah, literally the only thing I know about baseball is home runs. So it's got to be, it's got to be something about homes and like, like a home run mortgage. If you hit a home run, you, you get a home and it's just done. That's that's it. that's what I'm bringing. It's typically you get like a maybe a car if you hit like a grand slam in the All Star game here or like yeah. A I'm raising the stakes. You just get your house done. <laughs> well done. Houses for everyone. Well done. We'll do really well. We'll do really really well. Okay. Well, on that bombshell, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests who have been brilliant. You lived up to billing. Thank you very much. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Lena? Uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn or on our website, bribepayments.com. Awesome. Tom? LinkedIn as well, and uh, more public stuff to come out here very soon, so keep watching Fifth Third and Embedded Payments. Oh, I love I love a little little sneak preview. Awesome. Um, and Ross, what about you? Yeah, come find me on Twitter at Ross Gallagher07. Fantastic. And as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Kate Moody on LinkedIn, on Twitter at K8Moody. Or if you want to find out more about the work we're doing at 11FS, come and check out 11FS.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11 Thanks very much. Goodbye.